Okay, yeah, what about all the other religions? Small topic. No problem. You can thank John for me when he gets back. Okay, so I became a Christian when I was attending university. Uh, I was practicing a form of the American Indian religion. I actually went to high school with Sarah Brown, um, and I was not a Christian at the time, obviously. Um, and whilst at university, I told my friends that I was on a spiritual quest, that I was looking for truth. And so, so this topic does kind of fit in the sense that I did, I considered various religions, I was practicing the form of American Indian religion, and I was on this quest and told my friends, I, I'm looking for truth. And praise God, I found the truth at 23, who is, of course, Jesus. But what we're going to do is we're going to approach this, okay, what about the other religions? Um, but more specifically, how do they answer questions like, and I can't see if it's working, so hopefully it's working. Um, you know, how do they answer questions, what happened to us after we die? And if there's life after death, uh, what is that existence, that quality of existence? What is that determined by? And then also, do they have any evidence to support what they believe? What that, you know, what they believe about the afterlife, okay? You know, these are important questions for us to consider. I know many of you, I'm going to be preaching to the choir in the sense, but good things for us to consider. Is there evidence for what we believe to be true about the afterlife? What happens in the hereafter, after death? Is there heaven? Is there hell? That sort of thing, okay? So, I'm going to pray again. And then we're going to consider, I'm going to, I'm going to briefly describe what some of the major religions believe about the afterlife and why. And of course, I'm having to summarize complete religious systems into a couple sentences for you. So uh, please be gracious with me. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that... You have revealed yourself in so many ways. That you have showed yourself so clearly through creation, through your word, and most importantly, by sending your son. Jesus, thank you for coming and revealing yourself to us and giving your life in our stead. And God, as we consider these things this morning, that we would see even more clearly, perhaps more of the evidence that you have given us, and that we would see just how, how the other religions, how they generally measure up. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, and perhaps they, they're following after these things, that, that they would see, that they'd be able to, to balance things out and understand where the truth lies. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to briefly describe what uh, four of the, most, the world's most prominent religions, what they believe about uh, the afterlife. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And so we're going to go on a very quick ride here and see 
Islam. What, what does Islam teach? Well, Islam has a, uh, a concept of heaven and hell, uh, hell being a place of punishment, and a person's destination, their, their destiny is based firstly and most importantly upon the will of Allah, who is the only true God, what he has predestined for each person. And to experience blessing in the afterlife, a person must believe that Allah is the only true God and that Muhammad is his prophet. Also, too, they must live a life that is devoted to Allah, filled with good works, praying five times a day, observing the holy month of Ramadan, the fast that's coming to a close soon, Uh, giving alms, making pilgrimage to Mecca called the Hajj, and if you can't make the pilgrimage to pay for someone else to take your place. And then if, if you sin, someone, if you sin, if you sin, they need to show that they are truly repentant. And the, the, the ultimate way of doing that is to never do that sin again. And so the, the Muslim hopes that their good works will outweigh their bad at the end of their life. The, their holy book, the Quran, it speaks of the importance of this, of, of this measure of outweighing the bad with the good. I'll just read a portion to you. Is it there? Okay. If anything goes wrong where I'm like talking about Islam and, start, and it has Hinduism, just go, no, Lauren, it's wrong. Something's happened. Okay. Well, it says there, it says, and those whose scales are heavy with good deeds, it is they who are successful. But those whose scales are light, those are the ones who have lost their souls, being in hell, abiding eternally. And so the Muslim is, is hopeful for Allah's mercy and that their good works are going to be enough to outweigh their bad and that they have been genuinely repentant over every sin that they have committed. And also that Allah has predestined them for blessing because he's merciful to them. He's chosen to be so. And so they are going to do their best at trying to outbalance the bad with the good. But they cannot truly know whether or not Allah has predestined blessing for them or not. There is no assurance of mercy. None at all. And so they're hoping that that's going to happen. What about Judaism? And I'm talking about modern Judaism. Modern Judaism also has a concept of heaven. Heaven here on earth that's going to be established by the Messiah that that they're looking to come. That He's going to come and He's going to establish His kingdom which is called the world to come. And there are many varying beliefs concerning punishment of the wicked, whether it will be temporary or it will be permanent. They also believe that those who are born Jews are righteous by covenant and that they're going to enjoy the blessings of the world to come. And the degree of blessing in the world to come, it's going to be based upon their commitment to the Torah. 
And using the, the word Torah in a very broad sense of not just the, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, but also the entire Old Testament, the Tanakh, and then also all the rabbinical writings, that their amount of commitment to those things and the good deeds that they do, that that will determine the blessings that they have in the life to come. Depending upon that, they may have to go through a time of purification in a hellish type place before they can enjoy the world to come. But there's varying beliefs upon this. Uh, one Jewish apologist, he wrote concerning uh, blessing and righteousness. This is what he wrote. Being righteous does not mean that one never sins. It means that you, after you sin, you get back up again, repeat, repent, and try again. You keep on trying. That is being righteous. Not only that, but even if you keep on trying and you don't succeed very well, and you have many sins, you can still be forgiven and go to heaven. And so the Jew, much like the Muslim, is hopeful. Hopeful that their good deeds will outweigh their bad. So they will inherit blessing and, and perhaps have a, a short time of punishment and then being able to enjoy the world to come. But once again, like the Muslim... There's no assurance given, no assurance given that this is going to be the case. Okay? Hinduism. Hinduism is a world religion followed by millions. But really, those who study it, they tell us that it's, it's not so much a religion. It's really a philosophy. It's many ancient philosophies that have been gathered together and there's, there's, there's no one founder, there's no one uh, sacred text that is, is more valid than the other. And so, there's many varying beliefs that Hindus will embrace. And so, it's very hard to, to summarize exactly what they believe, because there's so much variation. But generally, the Hindu believes in samsara, reincarnation. That there's an endless cycle of death and rebirth. And that is determined by a person's good or bad deeds. Their karma. And the goal, the goal for the Hindu is to escape the cycle of death and rebirth by being reunited with Brahma, which is ultimate reality. It's an impersonal life force that is within everything. And when they're finally reunited they are liberated from themselves and suffering, and they're connected to Brahma, that is also said to be within, that if this is attained, this is called moksha. There's going to be a test afterwards on all of... No, okay. All right. Now, within the, the sacred writings of the Upanishads, this experience, this is, experience is likened to when salt is placed in water and it's dissolved. And so the salt is now in just infused with the water forever. Yeah? And moksha, this state of moksha, is said to be achieved by one of three routes. Good works, which is dharma. Knowledge, inana, which includes self-renunciation, uh, meditation, and yoga. Or 
bhakti, which is passionate devotion, where you would pick one of the 330 million gods of Hinduism, that you would pick one and commit your life and devote your life to that God and do the sacrifices that that God calls you to do. So one of those three paths you will choose, most people choose bhakti, that if you do that, like the Muslim and like the Jew, the Hindu is hopeful that their good deeds are going to outweigh their bad through enough devotion and sacrifice that hopefully they'll be able to at least attain a better reincarnation, a little less suffering, or perhaps maybe, maybe, maybe they will achieve moksha where they will be delivered from suffering completely. But once again, the, the Hindu... The Hindu has no assurance of this, that this will take place. I have lovely Hindu friends, and they've shared with me very bluntly that there is, they have no assurance that this will take place. They have no assurance about what awaits them after death, whether their good will outweigh their bad, whether or not reincarnation is even real. Does it exist? Let alone to, to achieve this state of, of moksha. Okay, last one, kind of. <clears throat> Buddhism. How does the Buddhist answer these questions? Well, Buddhism branched out from Hinduism under the teachings of Siddhartha uh, Gautama around 560 BC. And he's called the Buddha. And Buddha taught that we are in this endless cycle of rebirth and death comprised with suffering. He called it the wheel of life. It's, it's another way of looking at reincarnation. And therefore, Buddha taught that the, the goal of this life is to escape that, that wheel of life and to reach a state of bliss called nirvana. Now, Buddha himself, he confessed that nirvana cannot be described. He basically said that you, you cannot... Even, he said, don't even spend your time trying. You can't you know, explain it until you experience it, he said. However, most Buddhists, they believe that when nirvana is reached, that the physical person ceases to exist, and merely the mind, or perhaps nothing at all, whatever that is, is united with bliss and peacefulness. This is how a Buddhist monk described nirvana. In nirvana, nothing exists. If there's some feeling, there is no nirvana. Still, it's not to say nirvana is nothing. There is something. That is, there is peacefulness. That's the explanation. Buddha taught that the way to reach nirvana was to realize that what he called the middle way. To detach yourself from the desire of good health and wealth and physical comfort and to suppress such cravings by following the eightfold path. Here it is. The eightfold path summarized is this. Right living, right viewpoint, right speech, Right behavior, right occupation for your caste, right effort, right mindfulness, 
in right meditation. So like the Hindu, the Buddhist is hopeful. They are hopeful that they will do enough good deeds, that they will sacrifice enough to gain a better reincarnation or perhaps even attain nirvana itself, which is indescribable. But there's no assurance for this. There's no assurance. There's no tangible evidence that this will happen. Even the Buddha professed that that he couldn't really tell you about nirvana. He couldn't do that. And so where's the evidence? What about Christianity? How does Christianity answer the question? Well, the answer to that question is centered in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who both his early followers and he himself claimed was God incarnate. And they taught very clearly that there is life after death, that it awaits everyone. Heaven, a place of blessing, of being with God for eternity. Or hell, a place of eternal punishment under the wrath of God. And that a person's destination is based upon how they've responded to Jesus and what the disciples also taught. These things, how they respond to this. The, The teaching that all people, that all people have sinned against God's holiness and are therefore under judgment and separated from God relationally. That there's no good work or deeds that can be done to reverse this. To die in this state, Jesus said a person is condemned already. And that hell awaits. That's bad news. But Jesus also taught good news. That God is love. That God is gracious. And because God is gracious and because he is loving, that he provided the way to escape hell. That God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And he gave that life upon the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, as a payment, a perfect payment to cover the sins, to cover every evil deed. I know a lot of you know this, right? But aren't we thankful for this? And then if a person chooses to turn from their sin, ask Jesus for forgiveness of their sin and place their trust, their faith in his finished, completed sacrifice upon the cross, that that person will be forgiven. They'll be counted sinless, just as God is sinless, and therefore acceptable to God and lovingly embraced by him as his child. Gaining a personal relationship with him as God comes to dwell within via the Holy Spirit living within and also providing an inward personal assurance that when they die, heaven awaits. That it's not a, I hope so, but it's an I know so. That when they pass, that God will graciously accept them upon Jesus' merits, 
that they have trusted in and not any of their own deeds because all of our own deeds tainted by our sin. We need Him. All of the previous religions that I described, and I would say you can fit all the others in the same box, that their beliefs about what they teach about the afterlife, what are taught in their sacred writings, what are passed down from generation to generation, they have no external evidence of those things. Nothing to provide assurance. Not that much assurance is given anyway. And what they teach about the quality of one's existence after life, whether that's good or bad, they have nothing concrete to base those things on. Nothing at all. But is there any evidence? Is there any evidence for Christianity's position? And I share with you that this evidence, I was doing my degree in history, and so I approached Christianity from a very historical, analytical perspective, and this very evidence was the evidence that grabbed my heart, and I realized there is evidence, there is an answer. So, but anyway, an illustration for you. I've never been to New Zealand. I've been to many countries, but I haven't been to New Zealand. I'd like to go. It looks pretty. Now, I want to go to New Zealand. You may want to go to New Zealand. Like, what in the world does New Zealand have to do with this? Okay. <laughs> but if you ask people, you know, do you know anything about New Zealand? And they may say, well, you know, I saw a documentary on New Zealand. Or I, I heard, I heard this about New Zealand. I heard the internet's terrible there. We talked about that last night. Yeah. Yeah. But then you actually meet someone who's from New Zealand, a Kiwi in the flesh. And they've born there, raised there. They're from there. And you meet them and you can talk to them and you can ask them all about New Zealand and what it's like. Who's, whose evidence carries more weight with you? The person that says, well, I heard this about the place, or maybe I, you know, I read something or someone told me, or the person that came from there. Yeah. Well, all of the previous religions and philosophies that I described other than Christianity, what they say is equivalent to someone saying, well, I read this, or I heard this, or I heard someone talk about this, but they don't have anyone who can claim that they have come back or come from the afterlife that they have described. Jesus is different, is he not? Because Jesus claimed that he actually resided there before, that he actually existed there before because he is God. And that he came down from heaven being born a human child. And he also declared that he would publicly die not just for, you know, those people that have been on the operating table and, you know, they were out for like 15 minutes or whatever, but that he would die and his body would begin to decay and that he would become alive again, that he would return from the dead. If this is true, 
I'm still going through puberty, my, my, my voice. If this is true, Jesus has the authority firsthand, like the person from New Zealand, to tell us exactly what the afterlife is like and what determines what happens to us when we go there. Is there any evidence for this? Well, I would argue, yes. That's why I'm here, right? There is. When Luke, the author of the book of Acts, and I, I don't have time to um, go through the, um, the authenticity for, the arguments for the authenticity of the Bible, but I can tell you that as an ancient document, it's bulletproof. It's the best evidence that we have. But anyway, um, Luke, when he was recording the events, he tells us in Acts that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. And the word that, that Luke uses there, it's a technical term from logic that refers to um, that which is known or is convincing of a decisive manner, that it's great proof, the strongest type of legal evidence. That's what Luke said. Can we trust Luke? Well, you know, there was a time, well, some people probably still teach us, there was a time where it was taught, you know, that the Bible is, you know, historically inaccurate and Acts is one of the worst uh, you know, testimonies of human history, that sort of thing. And there was a, a scholar who was taught that, an archaeologist, his name was Sir William Ramsey. And he was taught that, that the Bible is unreliable historically. And so he went to the Middle East to do many excavations to see, is it true, is it not? And he came back saying this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. Meaning this, what Luke said is true. We can trust it. And William Ramsey, he went from being a skeptic to being a believer. And so what I'm going to do, hopefully convincingly, is to go through what evidence do we have that Jesus rose from the dead? And I'm going to use the acronym EMPTY because the tomb was empty. So first and foremost, we have evidence of an empty tomb. The empty tomb was verified by uh, Jesus' followers. It's reported in the Gospels that it was found first by Jewish women. And that's very significant. Because in the first century, Judaism, a, a woman's testimony was virtually worthless. It has the quote up there for you. A woman was not allowed to give testimony in a court of law except on rare occasions. And so if you're going to make the story up, you would not choose to have women arriving first. But the story is not made up. We had women arriving first. So the women arrive first, and it's verified by many others. And the empty tomb is also verified by Jesus' enemies. And we know that those findings are true because Jesus' enemies would have loved to have produced a body. It would have made a life much easier if they could have. The Jewish authorities, they did not produce a body. They wanted to. 
Their job would have been very easy if they could have just directed people to, oh no, this is the right tomb, here's the body. But they couldn't do that. The Roman authorities, David did not produce a body. And once again, Pontius Pilate, he wielded all of the power of the Roman Empire locally to do whatever he needed to do to find that body. Nobody produced. And he wanted to find that body because he wanted to keep things in Jerusalem just calm and cool and chilled out. He didn't want any disruption. He didn't want that. They did not produce a body. Also, the empty tomb is is verified by non-biblical writers. I don't know if you know, but you can take the whole gospel story. You don't even need the Bible. But you can put it all together from ancient writings. There's a book called The Historical Jesus by Gary Habermas, and he goes to great detail and brings it all together for us. But anyway, these are some some of the non-biblical writers. Josephus, he was a Jewish historian writing in the uh, first century, and he writes, Those who had loved Jesus from the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive on the third day. Josephus was a Jew. He was writing uh, for the Romans. And so this story was not something that he would write to please them. But he was writing the truth. Pliny the Younger, he was a Roman author and administrator, and in his writings he confirms that Christians met on a certain day, which would be Sunday, and celebrated communion. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the Christians were gathering together on a, on a certain day. Why that day? That's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Why were they celebrating communion? Because uh, he's alive, because communion would not be a celebration if he was dead. Yeah. Tacitus, another Roman historian, he states this about Jesus, that he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate, in a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not in Judea, but even in Rome. What was the superstition that he's talking about? Most likely he's referring to the belief in the resurrection, because he sees it as a, how this is superstition, someone coming back from the dead. There are many more, but those are a few. (laughs) So, an empty tomb. There's no one there. Okay, we know where Elvis is buried. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) M, multiple resurrections. I mean, multiple multiple resurrections. Multiple post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. The scriptures record for us several different appearances of Jesus in different locations at different times to different groups of people, resulting that on all of these people, all these people testified that they saw Jesus alive and well. Alive and well. Jesus is recorded first appearing to Mary Magdalene as she remained at the side of the tomb. Once again, if you were just making up the story, you wouldn't pick a a woman finding it. Uh, him alive first. And then two disciples on the road to Emmaus, to Peter by himself, to the disciples minus Thomas, to the disciples including Thomas, a larger number of disciples gathered at Galilee. Then Paul writes about 500 believers at one time gathered together, seeing Jesus. And when he wrote that, he said, some of them are still alive. Basically, you can come and ask them, if they've seen Jesus. 
Also, Jesus appeared to James, Jesus' half-brother, who was not a disciple until after this event. (laughs) Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, because he professes that he sees the risen Christ. And then lastly, by John himself. So you have multiple people seeing Jesus alive and well. And they're not only saying that he's alive and well, they're willing to say that to their death. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. That's pretty important. People don't usually die for cheap things. P, what does P stand for? Prophetic fulfillment. Jesus predicted his own death and his resurrection in great detail. He did so not in vague statements. You know, there was a, a witch that lived in, uh, up by Harrogate. I can't remember her name. A Mother Shipton, yeah. And I remember, you know, at one time when I was, I was pastoring in East Yorkshire, and someone popped through our letterbox, you know, all of her prophecies, because I needed to know what Mother Shipton thought about things. You know, and I read her prophecies, and they were greatly vague. You know, yes, a bad person will do a bad thing at some time. Okay, good. Thank you for that. Okay. But Jesus, Jesus was very, very specific. Listen to what he said. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Pretty specific. Great detail. And we know that Jesus said these things before he died because those that crucified him remembered. Remember? (laughs) That's why they set a guard at the tomb. This is what they said. Sir, to Pilate, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So we know that Jesus said it before because they were preparing, trying to prepare for the, what they thought would be a hoax. Jesus also predicted his resurrection using symbolic language, talking, comparing himself about being in like Jonah in the, belly of way, uh, in the belly of the whale for three nights in days. Also talking about um, the temple being destroyed and, and being uh, built back up after three days. Old Testament scriptures point to the Messiah rising from the grave. Don't have time to read those to you, but <clears throat> Isaiah lays it out 700 years before Jesus is even born. And so prophecies are fulfilled. Ones that Jesus himself said. You know, I can't tell you how I'm going to die. I don't know. But Jesus laid it out real clear. And he said, I will rise again. And he did so. And then T. What does T stand for? Transform lives of countless people. The disciples themselves, they went from fleeing from Jesus, running and hiding in a room, 
to being men who were willing to boldly stand before others and declare that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And they were willing to bank their lives on that statement. They were willing to do that. That's a big question for us. Would you die for something that you knew was a lie? There are people who die for lies all the time, but they believe that they're true. But I'm saying, would you die for something that you knew wasn't true? Because the disciples would have known it wasn't true. And some of them lived for an extended period of time, and they never denied what they saw, Jesus alive and well. And how did they die? Well, it wasn't pretty. I can tell you that. Philip, he was scourged and crucified. James, the brother of Jesus, he was beheaded. Matthew was murdered. James the less, he was beaten to death in Jerusalem at the age of 94. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he was crucified with cords. Simon Peter, tradition says he was crucified upside down after watching his wife being crucified before him. Jude Thaddeus, he was crucified. Bartholomew, he was beaten, crucified, and beheaded. Thomas, speared. Simon the Zealot, crucified. Would those men have gone to their deaths for a lie? I don't think so. And think of Saul. Saul of Tarsus, adamant Pharisee, willing to send Christians to their death because they're saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And then something happens. All of a sudden, this radical man becomes radical as a Christian, saying that he's seen Jesus alive and well, and he's willing to risk life and limb to be stoned, and you, you've read his, his list of his, his sufferings. And then, of course, in the end, he was beheaded. And then James. James is specifically named as a, a brother, a half-brother of Jesus. And we're told, John tells us, that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. But once again, something changed. James changes because later in the New Testament, he's called an apostle. He says of himself that he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he's eventually stoned to death, proclaiming that Jesus is alive. Jude, another half-brother of Jesus, who did not believe, once again, he becomes a believer. Why? Something happened. What happened? He saw Jesus. How did he die? He was clubbed to death and axed. A gruesome death. Would they die for a lie? No. They wouldn't die for a lie. And then, how are we doing up there? Can we? Two. What's that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, these guys, scholars and skeptics, 
these men who were very close to the events, who could measure the evidence for themselves, these guys, they become Christians. They're convinced by the evidence. They can see it and they confess that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has changed their lives. Ignatius of Antioch. There he is. Executed, being thrown to wild beasts. Justin Martyr, he's the guy that we get the term martyr from. He obviously had a martyr's death. Tatian. And all these men, highly educated uh, philosophers, um, uh, men schooled in rhetoric, lawyers. Tatian, he persecuted his deaths unknown. Tertullian, he was a trained lawyer. He, pers- he was persecuted, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't martyred. And then Cyprian, he was a teacher of rhetoric, and he was martyred by being beheaded. These guys transformed lives, dying for what they say, what they believe, Jesus, rising from the dead. And then, of course, transformed lives of millions of people since then, including my own, including yours, yeah? And then people who, who looked very closely at the evidence, they decided, no, you know, Christianity is not, not true. I'm going to debunk it. Yeah. These guys, like Albert Henry Ross, writing under the pseudonym of Frank Morrison, his goal was to disprove Christianity. He looked at the evidence. He writes another book. Who moved the stone? He became a believer. Josh McDowell, he was an agnostic, used to mock Christians, did the same thing, considered the evidence, became a believer and and a great defender of the faith. Another man, Lee Strobel, he is an investigative journalist. His wife became a Christian. It was driving him crazy that she became a Christian. And so he, I'm going to investigate Jesus like I'm going to investigate, you know, the, the way I do my reporting. He became a Christian. J. Warner Wallace, a homicide detective, once again, considering the evidence, becoming a believer. The evidence is there for people to investigate, to see, and lives transformed. The last one, why? A young movement, a young movement, religion, that was birthed in the most hostile of environments. Really, if you're going to pick a place to start a new religion, First century Jerusalem was not the place to do so. You wouldn't do that among the Jews. You would start somewhere else. But that's where it starts. It starts there. And all of a sudden, you have thousands of Jews becoming Christians. They're becoming Christians in the immediate vicinity of the empty tomb. They would have known whether or not there was a tomb that had a body in it. Christianity would not have grown if Jesus had not risen from the dead. And these Jews that become Christians, their culture radically changes. All of a sudden, they change their their day of of worship. You know, and, and Jews historically, they stick to their religious beliefs. They have been scattered throughout the nations and still distinct people holding to their religion, but here you have thousands changing in a short period of time. 
and they change their day of worship. To do so, to break the Sabbath, you don't do that as a Jew. That's an offense to God. But why? Why do they change their day? Because they changed the day that Jesus rose from the dead. They do so willingly. Animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice, very important to their, their system. Yeah. You need to. How else are your sins going to be covered? But they stop. They stop and all of a sudden, they're, they're no longer doing animal sacrifice, but they're celebrating communion. Once again, what a weird thing to do if Jesus is not risen from the dead. Because you have a dead Savior. And you're like, okay, we're celebrating that he died. Great. <laughs> Thank you. But no, they're celebrating communion because Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And so, trying to answer that question, what about all the other religions? Oh my goodness. Well, do any of them provide assurance? Not in their system, they don't. Do they provide any evidence outside their system? No, they don't. Hmm, what about Christianity? Is there any evidence? Like I said before, yes, there is. And it's not just internal, the internal evidence, but it's all the external evidence as well. And so, important questions for us. We're all going to die. I, kn I know it's a surprise, but we're all going to die. <clears throat> Unless we're raptured, I know, okay. But what are we basing our eternity on? What are we going to base it on? Are we going to base it on, are we going to base it on all the other religions, those kind of things, or where the evidence lies? Where the evidence lies, I would say, that's the best bet. So, be encouraged, if you know Jesus this morning, that there's, this is just a, a small portion of the evidence that, yes, I know, we're saved by, by faith and we, we trust by faith, but God has, has not left it to where there's no evidence whatsoever. There's lots. That Jesus is alive and well. And you know what? He's coming again because he is the Messiah. He's coming again and he is going to make this place right. Yep. Going to sort out all the wrong. And then if you and I, if we happen to perish before then and we have made that transaction with him, accepted him as our Savior, we are forgiven. And we have assurance. It's not I hope so or vague. No, no. No, we have assurance that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord.